Welcome to One Cause Church. We hope you enjoy this inspirational message. Right. How are you guys doing today? Great, great. Well, as Pastor Jeremiah said, that I'm going to be preaching in Spanish today, so I decided to give my introduction in English at least so that you guys know who I am. I'm just kidding. No, I'll be preaching in English today. Just so you guys know, I don't preach in English as often as you could, as, well, being the Spanish pastor, I'm pretty sure you probably never imagined me pre preaching in, in uh, English. The first person that I did preach in English to, though, was Pastor Eric. So, so he can bribe about that. Um, it was for the homiletics class, and I was dying of how nervous I was. Um, has anybody taken his homiletics class in here? No. No, 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 nobody. Okay, so I feel good. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fail with you guys. Okay, that's much better. All right, why don't we go ahead and uh, and stand on our feet? I'm gonna go ahead and pray. Father God, I just want to thank you in this moment of rest. Father, I pray that that you bring us into into this moment, Father, having our eyes, our spiritual eyes and our spiritual ears open, Father, to receive the revelation and understanding of what your word says about us. Father, I thank you su supremely for this covenant of sonship that you, have, that you have ordained over us, Father. And in this moment, I just pray that all peace comes into this room. Father, that any distraction, Father, that anything happening prior to this, Father, be cast out. And in this moment, it's all about you, Jesus. Let you be the center of this service and let your grace abound in this moment, Father. To you be all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may take a seat. So, uh, many of you guys uh, might know, my name is Pastor, uh, Pastor Chris Quinones, and that is my wife right there, Mary Lou. We got our baby girl, Leilani, in the back, um, she, dealing with all the little kids there. My baby is not a crybaby. I've, I've noticed that. I've met a lot of crybabies, but my baby isn't one of them, or at least that's what I like to think. And... <laughs> Unless it's four in the morning, then something changes right around that time. Um, I want to talk to you about a topic uh, that, that has been in my heart for a, for a while. Um, this topic, I believe that it's, it's something that each believer must come to the realization of uh, or risk your entire life uh, in servitude instead of sonship. So I want to speak to you on the, on the topic of covenant of sonship. This is what I'm going to be speaking about, and I'm going to go ahead and start in John 1, 12 and 13, and I'm going to rush through some of these scriptures because most of these you already know, okay? But we're going to look at a couple of things that I believe uh, are important for us as sons to remember, okay? So 1 John 1, and we're going to start in verse 12, and the scripture starts by saying there, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay? Notice that the scripture there says, and to them he gave a right. It doesn't say that they, they automatically are called the sons of God, but they have a right which they can exercise to be called sons of God. Amen? Now, let's go ahead and jump over to John 15, 15. Like I said, I'm going to go through some of these scriptures pretty quick just to lay down the foundation. The scripture says here, John 15, 15, it says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all, of this, for all things that I heard from my father, I have made known unto you. 
you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Amen? So, so we, just, we just read a couple passages here, and in both of these passages, the word servant comes out. Did you guys notice that? The word servant comes out. Now, when you think of a servant in the English terms, it's, it's someone, maybe you think of a waiter, yeah? You can think of a, a waiter that comes and maybe serves your food. He's, he's in some way, shape, or form probably the closest thing in our mind that we have to a servant, that, that, that we can come to in, here in the U.S. to that term, servant. But in the Greek word, this term isn't that person. In the Greek word, it's a slave. The, 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 the word for servant here is the Greek word doulos, and this word literally means a slave, a bondman, a man of servile condition. You see, the, the waiter doesn't live in constant fear of failure, but the slave does. The slave lives his life in a constant fear of failure. Fear of failure because of what the consequences might be of his failure. Especially during this, this Greek uh, context, the slave, often if he failed or if, if he disobeyed his master, he was whipped, maybe even killed for what he had done. The slave had no will. The slave simply served. So the slave lives in constant fear of failure, and that's going to be a term I'm going to keep repeating um, because I really want you to understand this. And let's go ahead and jump over to Galatians 4, 4 and 7, 4 through 7. Galatians 4, and we're still setting the foundation here, so I'm going pretty quick. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we us Gentiles, might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Isn't this scripture good? I mean, the, the, the fullness of time the, the very essence of, of what God's plan and purpose was for humankind, the moment of redemption itself, the fullness of time. Christ died on that cross according to the scriptures. He was buried, and on the third day he was risen again according to the scriptures. And he is now seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. This is the gospel. The fullness of time, the gospel comes into reality. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Let's go into the parable of the prodigal son. How many of you guys have heard this parable? The parable of the lost son, the parable of the prodigal son. I'm pretty sure all of us have probably heard it at some point or another, yeah? Okay, so let's go to Luke 15. Where I'm going to read that account of this parable. Luke 15, and we're going to start in verse 11. And I pray that while we're reading this, that God starts revealing to you some of these truths that are in this 
parable that myself I hadn't even seen before, okay? I, I was in my third year at CFNI, and I was preaching at, this, uh, at the Spanish church back then. And I remember when God started revealing this message to me that it was something that I couldn't fully digest in just one sitting and reading the scripture. I had to read it day by day and read it week after week. And it almost seemed like if every single time something happened in my life, God kept bringing me back to the scripture. So I want to take you through this journey that God took me in with this particular scripture and uh, see if you can learn something from Pastor Chris today, okay? So Luke 15, verse 11, the parable of the lost son. Scripture says, then this is Jesus speaking to his disciples and to, uh, I'm, I'm guessing, to a multitude of people that were there. But it says, then he said, a certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a faraway country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then when he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him to his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. Have, have, have anybody, I mean, I know we're in McKinney, but Pastor Eric from Oklahoma, I know there might be some other Okies here. Have you ever fed pigs? Has anybody fed pigs? Yeah? Well, I'm from El Paso, Texas. We don't have many pigs out there. But I had a friend in church. His name was Israel. And I would go to this friend's church, uh, this friend's uh, house, uh, just about every other Sunday, sometimes every Sunday. He was a lot older than me, but he was a man of God. And, 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 and I can honestly say to this day that I'm so grateful that God placed him in my life because he had such a passion for the word and for playing the guitar that he, that he, he I would go to his house and I remember we'd play, uh, back then they were cassettes, and uh, he would put cassettes on and we'd kind of like try to play, you know, uh, like the same rhythm as the music that was playing, and, and I had to learn everything by ear because back then you didn't have Google, you didn't have these things that you can actually learn how to play a full instrument overnight on, you know? So, so you, you, you had to listen and, and really have an ear for what he was playing and all these things, and I remember just spending days with him doing this, but Israel lived in a farm. His house didn't even have a street. It was like you had to walk about half a mile down the road to get at his mailbox. And, and, and I remember the smell of his house. He doesn't know it smelled because he's lived there his whole life. So he, to him, this smells normal. But if you visit his house, if you visit his house, you know it ain't normal. And I'm Mexican. We got some smell in our house. Usually it's menudo or tacos or we got something that smells delicious in our house. But this smell is different. This smell is, 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 a, is, is it's, it's just nasty, okay? And, and if you don't believe me, just Google Vado, New Mexico, and you'll see all the cows around this guy's house. I mean, it's a, it's a small city, so if you just Google Vado, you'll probably see some cows on that map. So anyway... I would go to Israel's house, and he had a couple pigs, and, and I, th I believe he had about four, maybe five pigs, uh, and we'd go quail hunting, and we'd go, you know, just paintball shooting, shooting each other till we had any, no more bruises where we could bruise left, 
And, and I remember that when it came time to feed the pigs, I would sometimes help Israel feed these pigs. And the food that they gave these pigs was the leftovers of the leftovers of the leftovers. I don't know where this, these people got this food, but it wasn't human food. It was, it was just disgusting. It was literally what was left over for days, and then it was all rotten. And when it was all rotten, then it seemed right for the pigs. And I remember when we're feeding out, I mean, we got boots and everything. You know, you can't go out there, you know, in the mud. They, they just, you just mess up your shoes or whatever. So, but Israel, he wasn't very careful with that stuff. You know, if you live in the farms, you don't care. It's just dirt, whatever. But all that stuff carries into the house, and then the house smells. I mean, guys, don't do this at home, okay? But I remember feeding the pigs, and, and, and I remember what it looks like and the smell of it. And to think that this man in Scripture is at such a low point where he desires that food, how low can you get? Well, it gets lower. To the point where they, the owner of the pigs looks at this man and says, no, these pigs are worth more than you, sir. Because the Scripture says there, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him any. So even this food was not worthy, uh, he was not worthy enough to have the pig's food. Let's continue on with the story. Luke 15, 17. It says, but when he came to himself, say when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go with my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And, and, and the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hands and sandals on his feet and, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now is found. And they began to be merry. Amen. But the story doesn't end there. Verse 25. Now the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf, but he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might be merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And everything that I have is yours. It was right 
that we should be merry and be glad. For your, for your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. So I was telling you earlier that God took me on this journey of this prodigal son story. And, and at first, the first few couple of months that I started start studying these scriptures, the only real person that I could identify with my, uh, uh, myself with was the prodigal son. Or at least that's what I understood. Because you see... I don't know about you, but I haven't been perfect in this life. I, I haven't been the greatest of sons. I haven't been the greatest of, uh, of you know, person to people. I, I, if, if you've heard anything about me and, and the background where I come from, I come from a very heavy drug background. So me, I didn't have maybe the upbringing that some people in this room might have had and I know I've done some dirt in my life. Um, and I was able to identify with this younger son because there was a point where I got to know Jesus. And there was a point where I decided to leave the church. There was a point that I met Jesus and I knew that I knew that I knew him. And there was a point where I got so hurt by the church that I decided to leave. And I was able to identify with this young man because when I came back to the church, I felt like that prodigal son. I felt like when I was living my parting lifestyle, I had wasted it all. I felt like, like when I was out there in the clubs or I was out there doing drugs, that that if I ever did come back, I knew that God would love me. So I identified well with this younger son. When, when I came back to Jesus, I remember that my life radically changed. I no longer was able to see God the same way that I had seen him before. Before, I had always seen God dependent on my behavior, then dependent on his absolute love for me. So my lifestyle, sin, and in the church, led me to the same conclusion. God continues to love me till this day. I've learned that my salvation and my, my re reception of love doesn't depend on my good or bad behavior, but simply depends on the Father's desire to pursue my heart. So when I started reading this scripture, I read the younger son's story, and I think to myself, I come from a Mexican family. I know that if I go up to my dad and ask my dad, Dad, I want my money now. I, I'd rather you die so that I could get my inheritance because that's what this man is telling him, that I would rather you die. You're not dying soon enough, Dad. So how about we just pretend you died so that I can have my inheritance? Now, if I told that to my dad, my dad has a leather belt he would whip us with. It's about this thick. And if not, he has these hands that feel like rocks when you touch them. They're, they're just solid rock. And, and my dad's used those, <laughs> those fists on my brother before, so I know that I should not cross that line. My brother once had the, 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 the I don't know what to call it, the stupidity to 
to do this to my dad. To, they were in an argument, and he, he, he flinched like that at my dad. And, and I will never forget it. My dad just smacked him right in the face, and my brother fell to the floor. My brother was about 16, 17 years old, and he thought he was like the man, you know? He was the man. And I saw the man cry in tears, and till this day, I remind him about it. Because he made me cry a lot. But you ain't that big now, bro. I'm just kidding. <laughs> So I know that if I came to my father and I asked him for my inheritance, which I don't know what inheritance that would be, but if I asked him for my inheritance, first he would be really upset. It's natural to be upset. Because at the end of the day, you're really wanting me to die. You really are that selfish to want your inheritance that, that you'd rather me die so that you can have your inheritance and leave? That's what this younger son is doing. But we don't see the father act like that, do we? We see in the scripture that the father simply gives him his inheritance, and he goes and wastes it all. But when the son realizes and comes to himself, he, he thinks to himself, I'll go back to my father. I'll go back to my father, and, and, and maybe he won't accept me as a son, but he'll at least accept me as a hired servant. And this is a mentality that we often have as Christians, that, that we are servants of God instead of realizing we are sons. And, and we settle for servitude because of our behavior. We deserve that servitude in our mentality. That's what we think, that we come to performance on a weekly basis. We become dependent on what we can do. Everything opposite to the gospel do you see that? In the gospel, there's no you. It's Christ died, buried, rose again. You're not in there. He did it all. He did it all. So when he comes back, this younger son, the father accepts him. And doesn't this just represent God's love so much? I'm glad. I'm glad that that God is so much greater than I could ever be, my father could ever be, and any of us could ever be. So this prodigal son is, 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 is very easy to identify with. But if you've been living at the church or you've been growing up in the church, maybe you identify with the older son. Maybe you identify with the older one. How is that? Well, I'll tell you how that is. When... When I came to Christ, I, I told you guys that, that I felt hurt by the church and I left the church. When I came to the church and I was serving God, I remember I was around 15 years old. By 16 years old, I, I, I got invited to preach at my first church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I'll never forget it because there was a lot of demons. And I remember we had to, like, rebuke a lot of demons. And, and, and they wanted to know my testimony. And they wanted to know what was going on. I just remember it was insane. They asked me to stay an extra week. And I had... I, it had all happened really crazy, okay? I was working at Albertsons. This guy comes up to me, and he says, do you preach? I said, yes, I do. I had never preached in my life, but I said, yes, I do. And he said, uh, I'm, I'm on my way to, uh, to Albuquerque, and I play the piano, and they asked me if I knew a preacher that could come with me. So can you come? And I was literally um, wearing one of those vests from Albertsons. Hey, you were talking about Albertsons earlier. That's funny. My whole family owns that place. I'm just kidding. They work on it. All my family works there. You need a job, let me know. Um, <laughs> But 
I'm, I'm there at Albertsons. I'm still wearing my vest. I'm like, dude, that's two days from now. Like, I don't know if I could go. He's like, well, just ask. So I remember I went, and, and, and it was an open-door policy. So I went with my uh, uh, supervisor. My, actually, she was a store manager at that time. And, and I let her know that, hey, uh, I just got invited to preach to some church. You know, uh, during this time I was in private school, so I know that that wasn't going to be an issue. And uh, she says, okay, that's fine. So I go. They let me go at the last minute. And when I'm over there, they keep inviting me to other churches to preach. So they tell me, can you stay another week? And I say, well, I, you know, I don't know. They say, well, how much do they pay you at work? I'm like, well, this amount, you know, whatever. I was getting minimum wage back then. And uh, they're like, well, you know, if you stay, we'll double it. And, and you would, that's on top of whatever offerings they give you at church. We just feel like you really need to share this uh, with, the, with the rest of the churches. I said, man, that sounds pretty good. You know, I had never really gotten an offering before. So I'm like, that sounds pretty good. Uh, I called my supervisors. They let me stay. And that was my first experience preaching. So I remember that I went wholeheartedly into this Christ thing. And when, when I'm out there, I'm, I'm living a holy life, or at least that's what I feel like I'm doing. You know, I'm pursuing God. I'm out there preaching. I, they even made these business cards for me. I felt all legit, you know. And, and, and I remember, like, people asked me, like, what's your number? You know, pull out the, the business card, and it said preacher on it, whatever, in Spanish. And, and that's a big thing in Mexico. So, you know, people like that stuff. And I, I remember that, that I felt like I was living a holy life, and I was living a life that really was chasing after God. So then my mentor during that time, um, he, he committed adultery on his wife. And when he did that, I realized now that I wasn't really dependent on God, but I was dependent on other people around me. And my whole uh, pursuit of Christ was based on my performance. My salvation depended on me. So when he failed, I saw him, the man of God that I, that I looked so much up to. When he failed, I said, what, what chance do I have? What chance do I have? And I remember I left the church because I, I knew that I, I, I saw this man on a regular basis being fasting, praying, and we would fast together. We would pray together. We would do all these things that, that the Christian discipline uh, is and, and all that gone for a pleasure. And I remember thinking to myself, how can he do that? And not only that, what chance do I have? I'm just learning. And you know what? I, I left the church, and I, I admitted today it was probably the stupidest thing I've done, but understand that in that moment, I, I knew that I was incapable of living this level of holiness forever. I knew it. Because my holiness during that time depended on my behavior. And I knew that sooner or later, I was going to fail someone, some way, some form. And my teaching was that if I failed God, I, was, I deserved hell. So, so when, I, when I realized that I identified what the older son was, after this man did this to his, to his wife, I remember that the church that he belonged to, accepted him back to serve in the worship leading team a month after he had committed that, that act. A month after. Okay, now, now, I know we're all about that grace. Okay, but how many of you know a month ain't enough? <laughs> Do you understand? 
I mean, it doesn't take a genius to know. That's probably not, that's, that, you need some healing. You need some restoration in that marriage. A month to me wasn't enough. And I remember when that happened, I felt like that older son. God, how could it be? How could it be that I've been serving you, you know, busting my butt, going out to Mexico almost on a regular basis. I would cross the border and we'd do, you know, Bible services at, at, at little cell groups around, around Juarez. And during all that time, I'm thinking to myself, God, how could it be that this man does this act and you just let him come back into leadership like that? I remember the anger that it drove in me to leave the church because of that. More than the sin that he had committed, the fact that, that the church accepted him back so quickly hurt me the most. So like the older son, in that moment, I identified with him. I realized that, that I had been working so hard to obtain something I already had. The, the older son, it's interesting in this story because the older son, let's, let, let's look at a piece of scripture here, okay? Let's, let's go back to Luke 15, verse, verse 12. When the, I want you to see this in the scripture, okay? It says, and the younger of them, well, yeah, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And then look at what this says. And he, the father, divided them, divided them, his livelihood, divided them. In the Greek word, it's both of them. So not only did the younger son receive his inheritance, but the older son also received his inheritance. Now, when, when I had read the scripture, I hadn't realized that, and I've read the scripture multiple times, and I remember when God started letting me identify with the older son him showing me this, and I, I'm, I'm going crazy because I've never heard this preached. And I say, how, wait, this just changes the whole parable. It changes everything. Because if he divided both of them, his riches, not only did the younger son receive his inheritance, but the older son, according to Jewish culture, receives a double portion of the inheritance. So the older son receives a double portion of the inheritance, and the younger son receives a single portion. The, singles, the, the younger son goes and spends it all, and what does the older son do with his inheritance? Well, let's go, let's go, to, verse, uh, let's go to verse 25. This is after the younger son has come back, and the father, uh, they're, they're all parting, right? They're throwing a big piñata. They're doing whatever they do. Okay, they have a, a, a barbacoa tacos everywhere because that's what we do when we party. Verse 25 says, now his older son was in the field. What, what is the older son doing in a field after receiving a double portion of his inheritance? What is, the, what is this older son doing as a slave in the field? Because that's where the slave belongs. So why is the older son in the field? Why is the older son in the field? 
working so hard, still working as a servant after he's already received his inheritance. What is he doing working the field? Now, this is just my thought and my opinion is that when he got his inheritance and he tasted, he realized the, the, the such huge responsibility of being free that he came, it was so much for him, he felt uncomfortable and simply gave it back to the father. Because he didn't know how to handle it. So you find him later in the story working in the field where he feels comfortable as a slave rather than being, taking ownership and being the master of his domain and having himself servants. So this older son, if we read the story correctly, truly is the prodigal son. Because you see, the slave lives his life in constant fear of failure. But the son, the son, listen to this, the son knows that he has rights as a son to fail. Did you hear that? The slave lives in constant fear of failure. But the son knows that he knows that he has rights as a son to fail. That doesn't mean you go out looking for failure. But what it means is if I do fail at some point, like the Apostle John says, if we do fail, if you sin, not when you sin, but if you sin, we have an advocate with Christ. If you fail, you know that he still loves you. You see, so I'm convinced by this story that the true prodigal son isn't him who wasted his livelihood, but it was him who lived his whole life as a servant, never realizing he was a son. Never realizing he had it all to begin with. So we see the story of the prodigal son, and we think, well, the, son, the prodigal son was a young one, but in reality, the whole time it's been there in the text, The greatest waste you can do in your life is live your life as a servant, not realizing you're a son the whole time. The greatest waste you can do is not live your life as a son. So we see this covenant of sonship really bringing, bringing it in with the love of the father. Because ultimately, it's not even about the younger or the older son. The only thing that's constant in the story is the love of the father and his absolute radical pursuit of these these sons heart so much so that when the younger son comes the father doesn't even let him fully apologize did you notice that he cuts him halfway he recites his prayer when he's uh, like desiring the food of the pigs and then when he's here with the father he can't even get his apology all the way out so the story ultimately is about the father's love so the slave lives his life in constant fear of failure, and the son, the son knows that he has rights as a son to fail. The slave can speak only as a messenger, but sons have been commissioned to legislate and make decisions regarding the kingdom of the father. The slave's life is identified absolutely by his doing, and the son's life is identified completely by his being. The son carries the DNA of the father. And something that I know now that I have a child is no matter what that child says about me, 
or not, that child is my daughter. And the blood that bonds us goes beyond a paper. If she was to decide when she turns 18, 19, 20, that she hates me and wants to go live in China somewhere to disappear from the planet and not be anywhere close to me, that in no way, shape, or form alters the relationship that we have. If she decides to stay with me and be with me and, and, and just stay close to us as parents for the rest of her life, that in no way, shape, or form alters the reality that she is still my daughter. Her identity will never be dependent on her doing. It will always be dependent on her being. Let's go to Ephesians 1.5 real quick. I'm almost done here. Ephesians 1, 5 through 7. Scripture says, Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to his riches of his grace. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible Though the word of God, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because John 3, 9 says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, but his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. And I don't know if you heard this illustration from Pastor Eric, but Pastor Eric taught me this illustration a while back, and I'll never forget it. He said, Chris, if you were to take a rotten apple and a good apple, and you plant those in the ground, what do you get? Which one produces fruit? And I, I, I didn't know my farming, so I said, the good one. And he said, both. And I, I thought for a minute, I'm like, that's so true. How come I didn't know this? Here's this third year CFNI graduate, and I didn't learn this in elementary school. Thanks, Obama. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but... I said, I said, I, he said both. He said, it's not the condition of the fruit that, that bears the tree, but it's the condition of the seed that bears forth the tree. And that just rocked my world. Because it just took me to a whole level of understanding what this covenant of sonship is all about. The seed remains. Let's go to Romans 8.37. And Paul here is so convinced of this. Romans 37, Romans 8.37, sorry. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life where I don't feel persuaded. But, thank God this isn't based on a feeling, right? This is based on his word. And his word and his seed remains. I want to tell you guys a little bit, a, a little story to finish here. And some of you guys have met my daughter. Um, Pastor Eric, uh, you know, last, what was it, last week or the week before, uh, where we came in and we presented our daughter. 
Um, so you guys, a lot, a lot of you guys got to meet her or see her for the first time, uh, Leilani Ray. She turned a year that day on the 31st of, of July, but um, our baby Leilani, um, Pastor Rick talked a little bit on, about on that Sunday, but when our baby, when my wife was in labor, our baby's um, heartbeat stopped. Uh, when the heartbeat stopped, the first time it happened, it stopped for about a minute or so. I remember that we were at, at the Methodist Hospital in Dallas, and I remember that when, it, when it, the heart stopped, there was a rush of, of, of doctors coming into the room, nurses and just assistants. I don't know what, what they all had, but they all rushed into the room to try and find my baby's heartbeat. And, and I remember that they're there, and there's, a, there's an urgency to the moment. There's an urgency. And, and, and I don't know what's going on. My wife doesn't know what's going on. We're just looking at each other. We know this is not good. And they tell us they can't find the heartbeat. So um, about a minute passes, and they find the heartbeat. So the heartbeat starts beating again. So this time they put a, a heart monitor through her, like, it's right on her head, and it can measure with exact detail the heartbeat so that just in case they weren't able to reach it last time, they'd have a consistent reading this time. So I think we took about a 45, maybe an hour pause during that time, uh, maybe less, and uh, my wife started pushing again. And uh, as she started doing that, um, the baby's heartbeat stopped again. And when the heartbeat stopped again, this time it lasted a little bit longer. And I remember that urgency feeling coming into that room. And I remember that, that there's just doctors everywhere. They're, they're, about, they're, they're, they're about to do something crazy here. I don't know what they're doing, but we're just looking at each other and we're just praying. We're just praying. And, and I remember that about two and a half minutes into that, the, the baby's heartbeat started beating again. And just, just when they were about to, like, suck her out, the, the baby's heartbeat stopped again. And after that, you know, kind of calmed down a little bit. The doctor said the baby was stable, wife was stable, everything was good, that we were just going to wait a little bit so that she can stabilize, and then we were going to try again. So during that period, the baby's heartbeat stops a third time. And this time, the doctors can't get the heartbeat back. So about two minutes pass, and the doctor just yells. I remember he yells out, we're going into emergency cesarean. And as soon as he yells that, it's like everyone knew what to do. It's amazing the way these doctors work. It's, as soon as he said that, it's just all these doctors surrounding my wife. The table goes in. They're starting to move the table within seconds, and they tell me to change into this clothes. And during this time, I'm, I'm changing into the clothes. By the time I reach the surgery room where they're at, the ba they, they're pulling out my baby girl, our baby girl. And I'll never forget when she comes out, she's a pale, uh, she's, a, she's a dark blue, purplish color. There's no life. There's, there's, there's no signs of life. And all I remember is I'm sitting next to my wife, and we're just praying in tongues. And we, we don't know what's going on. My wife can't see because she's covered. She has a blue cover over uh, right below her waist. But I can see the doctor, and she can hear the doctor, too. The doctor keeps asking the doctor that has our baby, which is in the same room. They're doing CPR on our baby, and the doctor keeps asking, do you find a heartbeat? Are you finding a heartbeat? And Mary Lou can't see him, and the doctor's not saying it out loud, 
but I see the doctor just nodding no, no. And they keep asking, do you find a heartbeat? The doctor keeps nodding his head. That happened for a couple minutes, and then they, they decided that they weren't, they weren't going to be able to pull her alive with CPR, so they started hooking her up with these things down her mouth and then through her uh, umbilical cord, and they put a, a, breathing, uh, a breathing machine on her, on her lungs to pump oxygen into her lungs. They put another, I don't know what they were, it's a, like an electron machine that pumps her heart for her. I don't know, it gives like electrode shocks into her heart so that it can beat. And uh, I remember that they're transferring out and I, I have some pictures, hopefully, maybe I'll show you guys later, but um, they're, 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 they're trying to resuscitate, re, uh, revive my daughter. And I remember in that moment, they tell me, uh, are you going to stay here with the wife or do you need to go, are you going to go with your daughter because we need to take her to the NICU. And my wife says, go with her. So, so I went with my daughter and I remember that when we get to the NICU, they start operating her and, and putting more stuff in through her belly button, putting stuff on our feet. And, and she's just blue. There's, there's nothing there. And I remember that they covered her in this blue sheet. And while the doctors are working on her, they cover her in this blue sheet. And this doctor comes to me, and the doctor starts telling me that, that we need to, I need to be prepared for the worst. He says that they did the blood test, they did the, the liver and the heart and the brain, and all of the test results came back negative. They, they, she had poisoned her lungs. Her heart ha had stopped beating a, a long time ago. The lack of oxygen was so much that they feared that she had brain damage. Um, and the doctor tells us, even if she was to make it, you're going to have issues with her the rest of your life. She's either going to be a vegetable or she's going to need special care. But you just need to prepare for that, Mr. Quinones. And I remember as she's telling me this, I'm just looking at my daughter, and I can't even really focus on what she's telling me. All I'm seeing is my daughter in that bed. And they brought this chair to me, and, and I was able to sit down while she's there. And my daughter, she's covered from, from toe to head, and her hand is, is sticking just outside of the covers. It's sticking just outside of the covers. And I remember I'm sitting there. I try to call Pastor Eric because uh, that's what we do when we're in trouble. And, and, and I remember I try calling. I can't even get a signal. And he tries calling me back, and I'm crying so much, I can't even get a word out. Like, my throat is unable to speak at this moment. And he says, buddy, are you okay? And, and I, I couldn't even speak. He, I guess he just heard me breathe because I couldn't even get it out. How do I tell him that my baby girl is dead? How do I tell my wife that my baby girl is dead? My parents just had gotten in about 20 minutes before that. How do I tell my parents that my baby girl is dead? And I remember that I'm sitting there in that chair, hopeless, and, and, and I did not know what to do in that moment. I felt so many emotions, anger. I felt disappointment. I felt distress. I felt hopeless. How can I help her? I can't help her. I can't do anything. I should have studied to be a doctor. All these thoughts are coming into my head at this moment. Anything that I could do to make this girl, to help this little girl out. And I remember in that moment, the devil starts tempting me with thoughts of, if she dies, I'm leaving ministry. If she dies, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with this. 
you know, we were serving as Spanish pastors during that time. And I remember thinking to myself, really? Really? We've served you. We've given our lives to you and all of it. This? This is what we get? And I remember in that moment, thinking back, and many of you guys might know them. Do you guys know James? And, yeah, they, they with little Carter, and, and you guys remember what happened with the baby? And this happened, uh, you know, months before uh, we, we went through this with our baby girl. But I remember in that moment that I'm praying in tongues and looking at my little girl without life. I remember looking back and seeing them at church after that had happened. And seeing them Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And in my head thinking, how could it, how are they that strong? And I remember looking at my baby girl and, and telling God, God, even if she does go, I am convinced of your love. I am convinced. I'm convinced. Doesn't matter what this says. Doesn't matter what my situation is, God. I'm going to believe in your love regardless of what happens. And that gave me strength to keep going and praying for that little girl. And I remember I'm praying in tongues, and I start speaking to her in Spanish little by little. And, and I start telling her in Spanish, baby girl, raise up, react, start breathing. Start breathing. Use them lungs. Come on. Just breathe. And I remember while I'm there and I'm sitting, I see her hand do this. For the first time, a sign of life. Her little finger just goes up like this. Just goes up. And I remember I see that little finger and just something in me in that moment knew she was going to be okay. I knew she was going to be okay. And I remember I hadn't seen my wife for about an hour at this point. And, and the doctor tells me, I, I think you need to go see your wife because your daughter, she's going to be in here for a while, and, and she has a long way to go. So I go with my wife, and I remember that the first thing when, when I walk in and, and I see her, uh, she, she asks me, did she die? And I just break. I just break. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't answer. I just, I just break down, and I tell her, like, you know, she, she's, she was dead. I mean, but I just saw her move her hand. And she says, she's going to be fine. She's going to be fine. Just like that. And I'm like, but you weren't there. I, I, I saw her in the NICU. Like, I saw her blue. I saw her purple. I have pictures and video. <laughs> it's true. She says, it's, she's going to be fine. And I just break, man. I, I lose it. And I remember that the first day passes, and our baby girl, they, they, they tell us not to get too much hope because she's still probably going to end up bad either way. And uh, I remember the day passes, the second day, and little by little, she starts passing each exam. Little by little, her lungs cleared up, her heart cleared up, and her brain cleared up to the point where at a week later, after a week and about a day or two, the doctor, when they dismiss her, the doctor is in tears telling us that she cannot believe that our daughter was born under the condition that she was born in. And never in that hospital had they seen a baby born under that condition and leave the hospital fully cleared of everything. She said, 
Mr. Guillaume, we were in the room, and she said, if you guys go to church, this is something that you need to talk about at church because this is a straight-up miracle. And, 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 and we just, after, after that time, you know, when we saw our baby girl go through that, we realized that, that this, this baby girl that we got, God loves her more than I could ever love her. God cares about her more than I could ever, than, than I will ever love her. So I want to encourage you today. I don't know what situation you're in, maybe with your family, with your parents, with your relatives, but know that this life is so short and that it's not worth holding a grudge against those people that you love. It's not worth, you know, going out and living your life wastefully when you have such good privilege amongst people like the people in this church. So let's go ahead and stand up. And I'm going to pray over your lives that, that maybe, maybe you're going through some issues where you might feel un- unworthy of being a son. And you feel like being a slave and everything's about your performance or what you can do. And sometimes it gets into the habit. I'm telling you, as a pastor, that, that can happen sometimes. You get into the pressures of performance, not realizing the whole time it's at the cost of your soul. So today I pray that, that you realize just how much of a son you are. And I want to finish with this. I told you guys I was involved in drugs. And one night that I was very high on drugs and very drunk, I remember I came sneaking into my house that I, had, I was living with my parents because I had crashed my vehicle. And I remember that I couldn't drink in my parents' house. I couldn't do drugs, of course, in my parents' house. So I remember I walk in about 4 or 5 in the morning, and I'm trying to sneak into this room because I don't want to wake my dad. And I remember that I failed miserably, but I eventually get into the room, and I shut the door, and I sit on the edge of the bed, and I'm just trying to put myself together. If you've ever been higher on drugs, you, you know what I'm talking about. So I'm trying to get myself together, and then I hear the door open. And in that moment that the door opens, I fear for my life. I'm probably going to get kicked out. And I know my dad's not going to be really happy with me. And I remember that I look at my dad and, and I just start, Dad, I couldn't even look at his eyes. I just, Dad, I know, I know I messed up. And he says, be quiet, shut up. And then I remember he comes and sits down next to the bed and he grabs my shoulder and I'll never forget it. He says, son, I want you to know that I'm so proud of you. That I'm so proud of the man that you've become. And I'm proud of the man that God is making you. He says, you're a preacher and an evangelist. And I'm just so proud of you, son. I love you. And in that moment, if you know my dad, my dad doesn't do stuff like that. But I will always remember it. Because in that moment, I knew that I deserved to be kicked out. But my father came and gave me those words that till this day have stuck with me so much that I've actually become those two things he declared over my life. I challenge you as a parent, as a father, as a mother 
to see your sons and daughters more than what's in front of you. And I know that we have a tendency to already do that. But I ask you to see further, to dare to dream bigger for your kids, to dare to see the impossible in them, and to maybe, like my father, call things that aren't as though they are. It took many more years after that event with my dad for me to come to this position or this point in my life. But one thing that I do know is that God's word never comes back void. And that the promises that he's made to you are promises that are sure to be fulfilled. So Father, I thank you in this moment for the love that surpasses all understanding. Father, for your grace that abounds in us and in our lives. Father, I thank you that your, the covenant of sonship that you've designed, that you've destined for us, Father, is so much that, that to us it might be not understandable, God. But Father, this is what you have chosen to give us. Jesus, our future hope and our greatest treasure. Father, you've decided to give us absolutely everything that pertains to God and godliness. Father, I thank you that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing above and below. Father, I thank you, Father, for the covenant of sonship that is sealed by the blood of Jesus. And Jesus, I thank you for the covenant that you've made with us as a bride, that we are now in covenant together, and together we rule in this earth, that your kingdom come and your will be done. And Father, I thank you for the blood that was paid for us. And if there's anyone here in this moment that hasn't received this Jesus, that maybe has been living their life as a servant, not realizing they're a son, Father, I pray in this moment that you bring identity of sonship into their souls. Father, that you bring identity of sonship into their lives so much that they know without a shadow of a doubt that they are loved and that their life is not dependent on what they're doing but on who they are. So, Father, I pray that over this church, as one cause, what we say to them is be who you are and do what you do. Be who you are and do what you do. Because as sons, you are no longer slaves to fear, but slaves to righteousness. So everything you do is righteous. In Jesus' name, Father, we thank you. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the message. For more information about One Cause Church, please visit us online at onecausechurch.com.